he said, what is the best cultural product coming out of America? What is, what is the cultural product that defines us? And he said, Marvel movies. That is the most profound thing coming out of the West. The West, which by the way, built cathedrals, built the Vatican, commissioned Raphael, right? And our most unifying cultural product right now is Avengers Infinity War. Hello, Gladys here. And welcome to the Knuckleball Podcast, where each episode I'll sit down with a stranger or a friend and we'll get to know each other. No scripts, no nothing. Just two people having a free-flowing conversation with no agenda. Yeah, I, I feel like we don't really do that enough. And and um, it's it's nice, you know, to put your phone away and just be there with someone. This podcast is cozy. It's light. And not going to lie, sometimes it does get heavy and it can get introspective. But most importantly, it's human. And, and you know, I think one of my friends once told me that it's almost as if it feels like having two friends in your ears. And I think that is a really neat way to describe this podcast. So there you go. Thank you for giving this podcast a chance. I really hope that it brings a little bit of joy to your day and, and makes your day a little bit better. If it does, please leave a nice rating and review. It'll really help the show. And I would love to hear from you. So please send me a DM uh, on Instagram at Knuckleball Podcast or send me an email at the Knuckleball Podcast at gmail.com. The Knuckleball Podcast. <laughs> All right, that's it. On to the episode. Bye bye. Hi, Rob. Hi. Um, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. All right. Well, so this is supposed to be like a very casual conversation, as I've reminded you a billion times. Um, do you, are you feeling really nervous now? Like, how, how are you feeling? Because I assume you don't really do this often. No. Nervous. Yes. <laughs> First time? Yes. Nice. Having a casual conversation, yes. Over over Zoom, it's always awkward, but I feel like yes. in real life, it's a lot easier. That's true. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here. Um, I know we have a lot to talk about uh, previously on, on Reddit. Uh, I know that we were going to dive into how people are finding meaning, whether it's like in politics or religion. Right. But I guess hmm. the broader question is, how do we even find meaning? Like, which parts of our lives uh, do we derive meaning from? Finding meaning, oh boy. Well, I would say the way to do that is through, you know, this is a very, you know, enlightenment kind of answer, but it's like, you know, investigating things, finding out what is true, I guess is is what I would say. So, like, you know, 
a, a lot of, I would say a lot of people would argue that I devoted inordinate amount of time to <clears throat> things like politics and stuff like that. But it's, if it's not really for a, a comprehension of current events though, really, it's more to understand the underlying, you know, meaning and implications behind not only policy, but like what the implications would be for society as well, I guess. So there's that. I do a lot of reading and whether it's historical or contemporary, um, you know, it gives meaning. It does. But there's also like a sense of, of searching, I guess, kind of through all of that. <clears throat> yeah, I was, I was actually going to ask like, because for me personally, like in the last couple of years, I have been diving a lot deeper into the philosophy of stoicism just because mm. I've had, yeah, you sound like you're, you're very exposed to it as well. Yeah. I've read meditations um, a couple of times and I mean, it's like, it's almost um, different circles that I've looked into and, and, been around it's almost kind of a meme like oh you know just read meditations by marcus aurelius and you'll be enlightened (laughs) but basically yeah like essentially there is though like a kind of it's it's kind of meant to be ironic though because that almost misses the mark a little bit because the whole point of the book is that you won't be enlightened you never will be so like yeah for sure i think it definitely like approaches from a more I guess practical standpoint, none of mm. nothing about it gives you the impression that like you're better than people. It's really more about yes. like reminding you that you are equally as crappy as every other person that you've met. And like so it's kind of more of like taking your ego down in a way. But yeah, no, th- that's that's really interesting. So I, I guess like diving deeper into the more personal side of things, do you mm. have, and I'm always curious about this when I meet new people, it's like, do you have some kind of a philosophy or like principles that you try to live by and kind of like consolidating everything that you've read so far? Oh my God. Consolidating. <laughs> okay. So <clears throat> I, it's not good to say, but generally it, it, it goes along this vein. I am extremely pessimistic about people and, and human nature in general, which <clears throat> living in the country that I do is not so good because America, a lot of our founding values and our founding documents really are products of enlightenment thinking. And the enlightenment is this radical break from philosophy because the belief of of a lot of enlightenment philosophers like Locke is something along the lines of, you know, humans are good and society corrupts. And and I would say that, and a a lot of people would disagree with that. And I'd say Camille Padlia, who is this, um, she's a humanities professor at University of the Arts, she says, the the reality is the opposite you know instead of society turning people into murderous genocidal maniacs people are naturally that way and society is what's keeping them from from being that (laughs) um and so i extend this this kind of pessimism about people it 
it's unfortunate, but it pervades a lot of my thinking, whether it's, um, you know, social policy or, or economic policy too. Like, I think at this point, it, it is beyond any rational debate that capitalism is exploitative, both here and worldwide. Um, but from my perspective, I don't see an alternative because every other alternative, on the one hand, it, it sacrifices an immense amount of efficiency, which I would not care about, frankly. I, I'm not really, you know, yeah. worshiping the GDP. I, I wouldn't. I don't think that that's a big deal. What is a big deal is when every regime, or at least the vast majority of regimes that are set up to combat the excesses of capitalism become genocidal, totalitarian, one-party states around a cult of personality. So, you know, there's, this is the, the ideal position to be in, and I'm, I'm saying that facetiously, because I can talk about all these problems, but then when I look at the solutions, I'm like, oh, well, these aren't too great either. It yeah. sucks. <laughs> That's so interesting. And also, that was very articulate and eloquently put. Um, has anybody ever told you that before? <laughs> They have, I, I don't, I hate to brag about this. They have, I, I'm inclined not to believe them. I'm, I'm very serious about this because, you know, it's one thing to, to say something nicely and to have good rhetoric. And, and, and I mean, people talk about this, even going back to Socrates and Plato. It's one thing to say something nicely. It's another thing to have something to say. So I try and be articulate in what I say. I try and make it very clear. Also, and, and another reason why I do this is because oftentimes I will say very controversial things. Oftentimes I will find myself having to clarify it. So I try now in, in the way that I talk and the things that I say, I try to almost be preemptive about that in the sense that, you know, I'm not trying to start off with a bad first impression, I guess. I guess you could yeah, say. So basically you're like, you're just trying to like cover all your bases, trying to yeah. give, it, <laughs> it sounds like the way that you approach your thinking is for, it's very logical. Yeah, you could say that. <laughs> Going back to what you said previously, mm. yes, there is a lot of negativity going around right now, you know, with like basically every areas of every aspects and a lot of that is because of media right but if you think about I think it'll be interesting to kind of go down this rabbit hole of like reflecting more on your personal life subtracting out all of the inputs that that you're being exposed to mm -hmm. do you really see that kind of aggression and like conflict that's going on between people i don't know i think for me it's just like i think i'm very optimistic because of the way i was brought up and because of the people that i've hung around with so i'm always curious for pessimistic and cynical people does that in some way is being shaped by the people that you're with oh, I see what families you're that you're you know that that you were brought up in like mm -hmm. how much of that w was an influence on like creating this pessimism you know i i would 
It, I think it would be very uncharitable to throw my family under the bus like that. I don't think <laughs> that they are. Really, I, no, but I don't think that they inspired it. I don't think that they really, I would say they didn't have a big part in, in causing it. I mean, like, especially, you know, my parents alone, you know, they are extremely hardworking. Um, I always would say about my dad, um, to people that I go to school with, I was, I would always say he's Catholic, but embodies the Protestant work ethic. You know, I always thought, I, I think that's a very funny idea. Um, so no, I don't think that, you know, I haven't had any <laughs> traumatizing experiences with them or anything. I just think that examined pretty objectively, you know, without any kind of, of rose tinted glasses, you know, people on a whole are impulsive and they, they typically are not, you know, I'm going down. I'm, I, I totally want to restart that. I don't think there's <laughs> people. We can people totally go down people. any, any paths that you would like to take. <laughs> um, I think I just, the fundamental conviction that I have, at least politically, but also historically, is that there's not a lot of wisdom in crowds. I'm not a big advocate of democracy, I have to admit, because I think, and I think it's been proven, you know, that when you have, I mean, democracy and egalitarianism typically go hand in hand. Um, and when you, when you outsource decision-making, whether it's on policy or, um, you know, the pursuits of, of, of the good in society, when you outsource that to, to a mob, which is what democracy does, you don't, they don't choose virtue. I don't think they choose virtue. I don't think they choose the good. I think they choose either the, the most obscene, the most entertaining, or the most simplistic answer. And I think a really good example of that just recently happening is the 45th president who was before his career in politics was a reality TV star. In terms of like pursuing virtue, because when I think about how society sets rules, mm. I guess in that way, I am very pessimistic because I personally think that it comes from a selfish standpoint. Like, for example, mm. murder should be bad because I myself don't want to get killed. Right. Or ideally. Yeah, ideally. And so I don't know. I feel like selfishness does have its way of manifesting into something that creates sort of, you know, like a protection shell around mm -hmm. civilization or just like the people within. Um, so have you ever thought about like, how do you balance pursuing virtue? Because I think right now the way we make decisions is like, how do we make the least mistakes <laughs> rather than like how do we get you know make the most good out of, right. you know out of the situation and so i think like from your your personal standpoint like i'm really curious in terms of like how do you balance the chaos that is going on in you know uh, on the outside versus like your internal world of like how can I not make this right, but how can I not co not contribute badly, <laughs> like add on yeah. fuel to the fire uh, to, right. to, well, to yeah, the that's, situation? That's a, 
Well, I think that's a really good question. You know, one of the things I've noticed with your questions is it starts off really broad. And I'm like, oh God, how am I going to answer this? <laughs> and then you kind of, you narrow it down though, and it, and then it starts to make sense. Um, and that one I think is a really good question because, you know, I've I have read a lot about it. You know, it seems in a lot of cases people focusing on the macro, on the the big picture, can lose sight of of the little things. And very often that is the case. But what I do think is true um, is that no matter what happens, you, you know, even when the Roman Empire was collapsing or when the Soviet Union dissolved, when the Politburo had their final meeting, you know, for the peasants, for the farmers, for the proles, life goes on. And so, you know, whether or not people think that, you know, the world is imploding because of something that the left does or because of the European Union, you know, life still goes on. The, the one thing that we can control here is, is how we are to each other. Um, and this is, this, you know, it's, a, it's, it, it could be seen as a cop-out answer, but I don't really think that it yeah. is. I mean, I, I have listened to people like for Hitchens and Sam Harris who think that, you know, they will be like, oh, well, there's no God, there's no free will. And then, and people will come up to them and be like, okay, well, you know, say we take everything you say at face value. Well, what does that mean? And what they would say is, you know, that nature is chaos in the same way that the political situation now is chaos. And the only thing that we can really control is, is how we are to each other, you know, how we treat people in everyday life. It sounds like the way that you shape your thoughts about yourself and also about like the world in general is by reading a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Is there anyone that, given the opportunity, you would like to interrogate them about a specific thing? Uh, Kind of like, you know, not searching for meaning, but like, is there any question that you're trying to search and answer for? And who would be the perfect book or like the perfect person to sit in a room and just like ask all the questions that you want? Oh my goodness. Um, living or dead? <laughs> eh, let's do let's do living because okay. at least there's a sense of possibility. <laughs> okay. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> That's definitely a hard one though. We can yes, come back to that. <laughs> um yeah, I will be thinking about that. I, I don't I don't want to go with some cop out answer like, oh, well, you know, the Pope. Although I feel like I feel like it would be What's helpful. What's wrong with interviewing the Pope? He's so inaccessible if given the opportunity. Won't you want to dig into his brain and just be like, what do you really think? Because I feel like a lot of their impressions that they give is, in a, in a sense, very PR or PC. Yes. Uh, oh, that's definitely yeah. true. And it's, yeah, it's for sure. I mean, there's, there's such a huge divide now. And, and yeah being in america is a huge part of it too there's a huge divide between people who who like this new mass that was new you know it was created in vatican ii which was a couple decades ago but then there then there were people who love this this traditional latin mass and there's a huge huge debate about it going on more online but definitely in real life as well and there is you know these these two competing visions of the pope 
where the people who like the new mass tend to tend to be, but not, are not always, tend to be of a left-wing persuasion. They're like, oh, this is great, and the Pope's a great guy. But the people who like the traditional Latin get so riled up over every minor thing that he does. You know, it's laughable. You know, they I've seen, and again, this is not indicative of the entire Latin community, because I will get killed if I were to say that it did. But there are people who, who verge on and sometimes do call him a heretic or imply that he is the Antichrist, which is, which is laughable. You know, they say, oh, he's changing ch- church teaching. And, and when you read it, you know, it's very easy to get caught up in it. It's very emotional rhetoric. But then you read about what he's done. You know, what has he actually advocated as far as changing the church? Hasn't advocated women clergy. He has not advocated changing the definition of marriage. He hasn't done any of these revolutionary things that people think are, are so awful. I think that he's, if somebody were to ask the Pope right now about his personal politics, it'd be very left-wing because he grew up in Argentina. So, <laughs> which is, I mean, I'm not disparaging him or Argentina, but I'm saying it. I think it's pretty clear that he is left-wing on social issues. He wasn't a big fan of Donald Trump. But I think you're right. I think a lot of impressions of him in public are very PR. And it's also skewed based on your views, too, which is kind of sad. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, everything that you've been saying, I know very little to none of because I, okay, I don't want to use this excuse, but I'm not from this country. I don't really, I'm still trying to catch up on everything politics. <laughs> which I, I think I need to do better better of. Um, and it's really interesting to talk to someone who is so embedded in, in, in all of these like macro things versus, wait, why are you laughing? <laughs> well, I mean, it's true. You're, you're not wrong. Um, I don't think that's yeah. a cop-out excuse though. If you're saying, well, you have to get caught up on politics. I don't think that's a cop-out at all. I think that's a valid, you know. Because the thing is like, Everyone thinks if you don't have an opinion of what's going on now, you are not helping. Well, that's very silly because and, um, yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't want to argue with you, but I, I want to take on that assertion specifically because that really, that's a very common thing in this country. And it's very annoying because it doesn't matter whether you have the most, you know, left-leaning, you know, this idea that if you if you don't have the right opinion or if you don't have an opinion that you're part of the problem that's patently ridiculous and i would say measure people's contribution by their contribution not the form that the contribution would take if i were to make one and i mean you know you don't seem to be oblivious to any of these questions too you know when you say I'm still forming opinions. You're not saying, well, I don't really want to think about these things, but you, you have to think about them before you have your opinion. That's fair. Yeah. Going left field a little bit. Yeah. Uh, do you have a sense of what your purpose is to be here? <laughs> that is an interesting question. Um, like, I mean, like I'm trying to figure out, you know, I know you, you are naturally curious about all of these things, right? Um, but do you ever envision yourself like after reading these things being like, I want to be part of whatever that's going on in a more tangible sense rather than just like, yeah. 
The answer is yes, and in the worst possible way. I've always <laughs> wanted to run for Congress. It's really true. I've I can tell. To... <laughs> um, I've always seen, you know, being involved politically as something I've wanted to do. There are people who tend to think it's very bad. It's a very, it is a very nasty business, but I don't think it's an inherently bad thing. Um, there, there are people of certain ideological stripes. It tends to be the extremes of both wings where they would say, oh, well, getting involved in mainstream politics is selling out. Like the idea that, oh, well, if you, if you run for office and your positions are within the acceptable realm of public discourse, you aren't a true radical. You aren't a true revolutionary. You aren't a true, you know, you aren't a genuine adherent to our movement. And I would say that that's a very, I, I mean, it isn't true, but you make it true. It's, it's a self-defeating, self-fulfilling prophecy and a self-defeating ideology. And, and it's not true either because Bernie Sanders as a democratic socialist ha is a perennial candidate for president, um, is a senator. And even though he hasn't done everything he wants to do, he has inspired a lot of people. And I think there's something to be said, even for that, even if he's not very successful on his own. Mm -hmm. So Bernie Sanders is someone that you look up to. Yes. For a very long time, I was very against him and his message. I have grown to, as, I, as I've grown to care about more things, I've cared about defending the ideas of, of, of a free market less and less. I'm not saying that I've, I've completely given up on it, but it, you know, the, what I've noticed at least in America and in, in a lot of writing as well is the almost inability of people who do apologetics for capitalism to acknowledge the legitimately destructive elements of it. And there are, I mean, they're abundant. Um, so I've, I've, you know, when I first started looking at things like, um, that Bernie Sanders did, and I would also read like Noam Chomsky and, and like very left-wing stuff, I would look at this and be like, well, I don't really agree with it. But one thing I could never, ever deny, especially in, in left-wing magazines like Jacobin or, or Current Affairs, I could never, ever say, well, this is biased, or they didn't do their research, or I'm only getting half the picture. Mm -hmm. I could never, ever say that. And that kind of, they've slowly but surely... Um, I don't want to say captured me for their side, but I, I'm much more amenable to it than I would have been in 2016, even. And will you, are, are you open to changing your mind like five years from now? Absolutely. I probably will. <laughs> That's so interesting. So have you noticed like how your, how the things you care about from like, I don't know, three, four years ago, well, not even like two, three years ago have changed. And like, how have they changed compared to what you care about now? Well, they've changed massively because, um, what, what did you used to care about? What did I used to care? Well, it used to, it's not that I don't care about those things now, but I care about a lot more things. So I would yeah. say like 2016 ish, I did not care even a little bit for international politics. Now, I want to make it very clear. I'm not saying that, oh, well, I thought it was inconsequential, but to me, it appeared to be a terrific bore. Now, through interests that I had previously, which was um, typically of a, of a right-wing persuasion, 
um, the first person, the first president at least, to pay serious attention to the global issues of, of what became modern America. The first person to do that was also right wing. It was Richard Nixon. Um, Nixon, I, I mean, I am personally very sympathetic to him. I read a fantastic biography on him last summer. Now he won. I'm sorry, what? Sorry, what's it called? Um, Being Nixon, A Man Divided. I forgot the name of the okay. author. <laughs> I will go it's, look it's, it up. Oh, it's a fantastic book. But one of the things about Nixon, what was so consequential about his presidency was not what he did as president, but the battle that he won for the soul of the Republican Party. Because the majority of people, the majority of Republicans, when he was... Um, when he was endeavoring to be president, were isolationists. They were very against, you know, our involvement in, you know, stopping the spread of communism, whether this involves, you know, intervention in Vietnam or, you know, relations with China and the Soviet Union. We were, you know, there were a lot of people who were saying, we shouldn't get involved, this isn't our fight, and, and things of that vein. But, but Nixon really believed in the, the exigence of becoming competent in foreign policy, and he recognized that we were going to play a large role in this in the coming decades. And he was right, of course. Um, and so from there, and, and, and that's just one example, but all of my interests kind of branched off from the main ones that I had. And some of them, you know, the newer ones, I consider to be more interesting now than some of the things that I really cared about that got me interested in them in the first place, which is interesting. Hmm. Is this something that, because, okay, here's the thing about me is that politics have never really interested me in the level and degree that like it has for you. I can literally see your eyes light up like when you talk about these things. Oh God. And so, and, and that applies to history as well. So this question is coming from more of a selfish standpoint, which is why is politics important? Does it really directly influence your daily life in a way uh, basically i'm trying to ask can you please pitch to me why the hell i should really get into these things and understand like how governments work and how conflicts operate and, and it, it's all around humans right and i guess like that's that's the most important part but like how does knowing what happened before and right now help the future well i mean well that is a really good question and i mean um to to start off with your you know with your first question it is it's, it'll be a very disappointing answer in all reality and all, in all probability will it affect your daily life if you choose not to learn about it or follow it probably not um and that is something that i think a lot of people lose sight of is something now you know, it really, it really is the case that, you know, if you're, if you are of a certain socioeconomic status, yeah, you probably won't be too majorly affected by the nitty gritty, you know, um, daily events of politics. Now, that being said, though, I do think that it would, it would be silly to say, well, there are no effects that it has on, on everybody's life, because there are some events which can be huge paradigm shifters that occur very quickly. And I don't 
want to get too into it if you if you don't want to discuss this but one very recent example i think could have been the january 6th event there um and i think that the reason why i i follow what i do when i read about this history and i read about politics is because um so much is made of these things that i figure it's it's it is worth it to understand them like the, the um the media will talk about how you know Donald Trump was to blame for January 6th or how social media was to blame or how, you know, or who incited what and who did what. I would consider if, if we're to either, and I'm, I'm not taking a position on it either way, but if we are to defend or argue against the assertions of who incited what or who is to blame for what, it's worth it to understand how did we get here? How did we get to it to First of all, to understand January 6th, you have to understand a bunch of things. I would say the Trump administration, um, his rhetoric towards his dispositions towards democracy and towards the rule of law. But also, if you want to understand those things, then we have to understand, well, how did he get there? How did he become president? What, I would say, what went wrong to make this guy the the most viable candidate for president and to understand that <laughs> you gotta would, have to go down that yeah right i mean I, I could keep going with specific events like i would say that the stock market crash in 2008 played a big role and again yes you can go all the way back but the but to get to your question about why should you care and why should people care about politics there is no greater um answer that i can give than what Plato had to say about it, or, or arguably Socrates, which is that at its core, you know, we can argue about tax reform, and we can argue about social traditions and, and things of that nature. At the end of the day, though, every political dispute revolves around the good life, and what people's conception of the good and the good life is. So I would say that everybody's going to have an opinion about that, you know, and so it, it kind of, it varies where, what, where people vary is the extent to which they're willing to defend their vision of it. And I think that, um, you know, Christopher Hitchens always used to say this in, in, when he was debating theists, he would always say extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. So I would say there, there is a, of a unique audacity, I think that our generation has, which is which comes from social media. You know, we at the click of a button, we can reach an audience uh, worldwide. We can reach an audience that the richest person a hundred years ago could only dream of in in the click of a button. And so we, but this has given us a great a great hubris in that we think, frankly, anybody cares at all. You know, I think a really good, I think a, a really effective put down um, recently has been, did I ask though, or who asked? And why is that so hurtful? Why, why, does that, why does that persist in our discourse? Because the notion, you know, that nobody cares, nobody, what you're talking about, nobody cares. That's an extremely hurtful thing because our entire lives, our interactions, our social media is predicated and revolves around the idea of people caring about you and being connected. So when somebody says, well, who asked, or did I ask, or damn, I can't find who asked, that's a hurtful thing because it's, it's denying you, you know, 
the sense of community that supposedly everybody has. And so um, to get back to, you know, why should I care about this stuff? Why should I care about defending it? Because everybody has opinions. Everybody has their own conception of what the good life is. And I would argue if we're going to have a discourse where people in a, in a public square, whether that's physically or on social media, where, where they assert what I, my conception of the good life, my conception of what freedom consists of, my conception of what virtue consists of, be able to defend it. If you're going to talk about it, be able to defend it. Now, for people who aren't inclined to, to discuss that stuff, maybe the, the utility isn't quite there. I've always considered, you know, debating these things and, and people's conception of them to be very interesting. And if, I, if, if I'm going to defend my own conception of these things, I have to be able to defend them. Yeah. I have a few questions, which is normal after. I feel like after every rant that you have, that gives <laughs> me like five more questions and I love it. They really are rants. Um, I'm really sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Please don't apologize. Like this is actually opening up my perspective to the things that I need to pay more attention to um and so I I think after this conversation I'll definitely pick up some books and like really get into it and I'll probably ask you offline um some recommendations but I think first question I have is going back to the January 6th uh I don't even know what you call it, attacks. Um, yeah, it's so, very um, ambiguous. <laughs> yeah. Um, has understanding Donald Trump's background given you more empathy as to how he is the way he is now? Absolutely. Or, That's okay. an unpopular opinion, I, but I, I was say, I was going to say like, or did it actually enforce your negative opinion of him? Absolutely not. I would say, um, yeah, my my opinion on Donald Trump is is so it's it's multifaceted. It really is because I think you have to deal with him, the person, separately from his supporters, who I think very often get attacked in lieu of him, which I don't think is a very good thing to do. It's not productive and it's not accurate. Now, regarding Donald Trump specifically, I absolutely do not think that his background could be a grounds for hating him. In, in as far as his upbringing goes, relative to his, um, his, his life before politics, he's a terrible person. I mean, you can find dozens of examples of people who own land in New Jersey or, or different areas of the country where he was trying to come up with developments or he was trying to, to, to develop a building. And they describe the things that he did to get them to vacate their property, whether it was, um, you know, sending very loud construction crews, whether it was in intimidation in some cases. Now, I have to say, I wish I was better informed to talk about this. I read about this quite a long time ago. But the long and short of it is he would do very nasty things to get people off their property. And in some cases, the development that he wanted to build didn't even go through in the end. Now, relative to his, his upbringing, though, 
I have, from what I've read about it, was very difficult. Now, a lot of people like to pick on him for his quote when he says, oh, well, I got a small loan of a million dollars. Now, excellent PR there. Excellent, um, you know, you know how to come off when you're talking about a small loan of a million dollars. Um, <laughs> but I do think, I, I read, um, I, I did not finish the biography. I'm not, I'm not sure why, actually. But I did get into this early chapters of, a, of an unauthorized biography of him called Never Enough. Not the one written by his niece, but Never Enough, the story of Donald Trump, I believe it was. I, I, have to, I have to go back to these authors, I really do. But the early chapters that I read, you know, his upbringing was not as, as easy as everyone would believe. Now, certainly, certainly, he did not have to struggle for material goods. There is no doubt that was never something that he had to deal with. But his father was very rough on him and his siblings. He also lost his older brother to alcoholism. And to this day, he talks about it. He does it with a, with a bit of a note of levity. But he, you know, at rallies, he would say, you know, I don't drink. He goes, my, yeah. my brother you know, he drinks and, and he was an alcoholic and he died. And he goes, he goes, could you imagine what a mess I would be if I drink? And then, and then everybody laughed, but it's, but it's so, I feel like there is a, you know, we like to, to insult him. We like to insult his intelligence. There is a massive amount of self-awareness in that proclamation. When he says, can you imagine what a mess I would be if I would drink? I think he's right. Mm -hmm. I think he pursues a lot of things to excess wealth, women, um, status. And I think that he's not wrong to say, you know, if I were to drink, I would probably do it to excess. I think he knows himself. <laughs> yeah. That's so funny that you mentioned that because my, my mom, I, she doesn't hate Donald Trump, but that is the mm -hmm. one thing that she always brings up and that like she respects him for, like you said, having that level of self-awareness to not go down the same path that his family did. Um, when it comes to understanding someone and developing empathy for someone, like, why is that so hard? Because even in my personal life, I struggle with that. Mm. Um, and I don't know. Like, do we just get some kind of a weird primal satisfaction from being in a community that collectively shits on someone <laughs> like yeah i would say we like, do what you know, does this, that fulfill <laughs> what does it fulfill well a lot of things i mean this kind of gets into why i'm i'm pessimistic about people writ large even though i don't i, I wouldn't say i hate people but i would say that there is there is certainly um a tendency to do this to to dehumanize people um, especially people it's that either be easier. It's yes, just easier yes, it to is. like put someone in a box and just be like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is one shade of them, and that's all we're we're ever gonna look at it. And also right. because of I guess confirmation bias comes into it too. That too. But for for especially in politics too, um, but but also just in, in personal life, it's easier to to justify wishing ill on some somebody who you don't perceive as being on the same level as you. You're never going to, if your mother is sarcastic to you, you're not going to leave your house and say, oh, that bitch, I hope she drops dead. You would never, you wouldn't, yeah. <laughs> ideally. <laughs> um, 
it's much easier to do it to the idiot who flips you off at the intersection. It's like, ah, oh, hope he drops dead. Um, because you don't know them. But then, you know, say, you know, it becomes infinitely more complicated when you know that that person is leaving, you know, their family after having an, an argument or, you know, they're, or they're having a very rough day. It becomes infinitely more difficult. And you have a harder time justifying saying, oh, I hope he drops dead when you know all of the things going on in his life. This is, and, and it's simplistic, just on the personal level, you see that dynamic. At the political level, it's that times a thousand. Um, especially, it's so much easier to curse that guy on the TV screen. Right, but it's it's so much easier. She, and, and I think Hillary Clinton, notably, was a victim to this when she said, oh, well, you can put half of Trump supporters into the basket of deplorables. Can you? Can you really? Because, you know, a lot of things, and again, I'm not saying this to do apologetics for Trump, but I think a lot of what Hillary Clinton has had to say regarding her law, she talks about, oh, well, there was an influence of, of white supremacy and this and that. And again, those, those forces certainly exist in this country, but they are marginal. White nationalism, David Duke, and the third iteration of the Ku Klux Klan, I promise you, did not result in 50% plus one of the country not voting for you for president. And if you think yeah. that, which she clearly doesn't, but if, you, if she were to say that, she would be beyond stupid. And so it's, it's very simplistic to look at Trump supporters and slander them with these, these undesirable titles. They're white nationalists. They're white supremacists. They are uneducated. They are stupid. Some of them are white nationalists. Some of them are white supremacists. Um, but certainly not all of them. And when you call them that, you are playing into the hands, not only of people who would divide this country, you're playing into the hands of the white nationalists. Because very often, I have read things that they've written where they basically say, they make a pitch to Trump supporters where they'll basically say, these people already see you as a, as a white supremacist or a white nationalist. But really, is that so bad? Here's what I think. Here, let me tell you what I... It gives them an in. It gives them an in. Yeah. Not the best road you want to go down if you're trying to have a civilization, as I think yeah. we are. Okay, so given the givens, going back to your point on like, you know, your purpose, you feel like you want to be a part of Congress, you don't, you don't want to run for Congress. How do you like take all of what's going on right now having like you know what you're getting yourself into you know that every single thing that comes out of your mouth is going to be scrutinized to whatever degree um likely half of half of your audience is going to take things the wrong way at some point or another how like how do you feel that like how do you feel that that would trump the value add that comes from being a politician. You're right. It's going to suck. And it, <laughs> um, it is going to suck. <laughs> but I would say that, you know, again, I don't and, like to brag. And also, sorry, go, going back to, <laughs> I mean, not going back, but uh, kind of extension of that is what if you go down in history as like that terrible guy? Does that matter terrible. to you? Terrible as in a failure of a politician or morally bad? Hmm. Is that, is that um, any different? 
No, I, I think they're completely different because there are people who, who can say of somebody like Stalin, well, you know, he was the architect of the Holodomor. He starved millions of people, but he achieved political power. Um, I he see was what you're saying. He was a good ruler, but had, or not a good ruler, but he was, he was a ruler, but had bad morals. Now, uh, uh, the exact opposite would be Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, relative to other conservative party, uh, conservative members of parliament, is one of the most popular prime ministers in recent memory, or was before this party scandal. He is not a moral person. I have read extensive coverage of him. He does not really take morality very seriously. Now, he is still the most popular conservative MP in quite a while. So yeah, I, I would, just to get, to get back to your question, I would say there's a difference between being a failure of a politician and an immoral person. So I just- Which one which would one, hurt more? <laughs> which would hurt more? Which would hurt more? Honestly and genuinely a failure as a politician. And I say that not because I don't care about morality, but because if you look in anybody's life, you can find some shitty thing that they did. Now, clearly there are people who, who tend to do this more. I, I would say it becomes very difficult to look favorably on a politician who cheated on their wife. But look at John F. Kennedy. We do look favorably on politicians who cheated on their wives. Now, what would be more disappointing is to be a failure as, as a politician, because just Can I interject for a second? Yeah, sorry. sorry. Yeah, yeah. So going back to like the morally bad stuff, do yes. you feel like people are more willing to excuse you as a morally bad person because they're like, you know, that's not really his job to be a, a morally good person as a politician. But if you suck at, as, uh, if you suck at your job as being a politician, that's where all the spotlight's on you. I think you make a good point, but that's not why I'm in it. Because okay. you're definitely right. People will forget that JFK, or I mean, it's very difficult to forget with JFK, but they will openly just, they will dismiss, you know, Marilyn Monroe, all those people that he had affairs with. Because, oh, well, he was a really good president. He was a really charismatic guy. I don't think that's a good thing. And I think, in fact, I think that's a terrible dynamic. And I would argue that the people who say that, oh, well, it's not a politician's job to be moral, you couldn't be more wrong. When you have public life, it is your job to be moral. Now, there are clearly times where, where exigence demands good leadership, not at the expense of good morals, but certainly, you know, we can look the other way. Winston Churchill, for example, was an alcoholic. Does that change the fact that Winston Churchill was part of the coalition that defeated Hitler? In my opinion, no. I don't really think the fact that he imbibed a little bit after a session of parliament. I don't, that doesn't particularly bother me. But I would argue that moral figures, or, or not moral, public figures, <laughs> don't just have lower moral expectations. They should have higher moral expectations of themselves and of their colleagues. And it's a, it's a shame that we don't hold them to those standards. Right. Yeah. Th that's, I guess, the disconnect between reality and what is supposed to be expected of them. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and I guess in reality, we do dismiss a lot of the shitty things that they do as a normal human being, right. but we hold them to a lot higher standards in terms of their policies and, and basically everything related to a career, right? Yes. Um, and so if you were to 
successfully, you know, run for Congress. How do you, like, how do you find that balance between both? And I guess I for, for us, it's like, say it again. Can I be vulgar? Yeah. <laughs> well, for one thing, don't fuck other women if you're married. <laughs> That's the one thing. But the thing is, if you do, people will be like, that's just what a politician does. Yeah. Yes. There's there's a very lovely but, but you don't think it's excusable. <laughs> but you don't think it's excusable, at least for your own moral judgment. You don't want to be that kind of person that does No, that. I definitely don't. I mean, I think that, you know, a, a lot of what's driven political dynamics in the West, one of the most important and influential books, and you um it's, it's pretty short, so I'm not going to give you a huge amount of homework here. But The Prince by Machiavelli, massively important, definitely changed paradigms in um, Western politics. Because Machiavelli, now, now to completely contradict what I just said, Machiavelli is revolutionary because he says morality and politics are separate businesses. And pragmatically, I do agree with him. I agree that you can't tie the, the two together because especially as we've become more advanced as, as a society, it's certainly very hard to see the moral framework of an appropriations bill or a spending bill or whatever. Um, but Machiavelli is specifically saying a ruler, not only is it very difficult for a ruler to be moral, but he says it's almost impossible. And in fact, and, and he does this selectively, of course, but in his book, he points to examples of who, of rulers that were moral, and what is the common thread? They tend to be beheaded, overthrown, killed, hated, despised, seen as weak, not respected, invaded. Did I mention killed? It's part, <laughs> so it is part of the image that yes. when you're a politician, you are expected to be bad. You're expected to make some decisions you know, that reflect not the kind of standards that we hold ourselves to. Right. And that's because of Machiavelli, because Machiavelli really says the only way to be successful is to do this. And I think that far more than, than anything else, this has been absorbed into the, the public conscience. Now, I, I would Do you question agree with that, though? What? Do you agree with that? I, I know I previously you said that moral and politics are inextricably linked together, but. Well, right. That's, that's why I don't want to say yes and no, but, but kind of, because on the one hand, he's absolutely correct. I mean, it, it, you, you have to read this because he, he just makes such a brilliant case for it. He really does. But he talks about how if you as a ruler abide by the standard morality of the day, if you turn the other cheek, if you're not wrathful, if you're not vengeful, you will be killed. It's not an if, it's a when for him. But on the other hand, he says, he's, he affirms very strongly, he says, by transcending the moral order, you uphold it for everybody else, which is a very interesting idea. It's a very, it's, it's contradictory to be sure, but he doesn't, he certainly doesn't, doesn't, neglect to account for the fact that moral law exists for a reason. And he says it's to regulate society and it's to keep people from being barbarians. But he said, your job as the ruler of society is not to be bound by the conventions of the day. You 
and he's he he's addressing this by the way to a florentine prince um there was a republic in florence and then that got overthrown and he was exiled so he was writing this this to the prince lorenzo de medici one of the funniest things and most editions have it so definitely read it is the letter that he wrote to the prince dedicating this work it is the most fawning if you i can't even think of another word um it, it is fawning it is it is um full of of just of flattery flattery that's what it is yeah it is to to this prince he is you know to your to your excellent majesty i am hoping that the humble body of my work may in some minute way help his <laughs> majesty in the pursuit of the ideal state that i know his rule will bring about it, it was just the funniest thing and towards <laughs> the end He's trying to come out of exile because towards the end, he goes, in reading the, the summation of my life's work, I hope you will understand what a cruel blow fate has dealt to me. Sincerely yours, Nicola Machiavelli. <laughs> it is just the funniest thing I've ever read. It is so funny. <laughs> oh my God. I forgot the third question. Oh yeah. So what is a good life to you it's such a you know I, I feel like it gets repeated a lot and a lot of people who repeat it aren't really doing it you know socrates says the unexamined life is not worth living you know i would say the the way to pursue the good life the way to pursue virtue the way to pursue meaning as well is through investigation not in the enlightenment sense not like Rene descartes saying oh well you know i have to investigate empirically is there a god but really it is to deliberate on these things these questions that we we are drawn to humanity is drawn to just by our nature you know and unfortunately this is where you know my <laughs> my friendship with a lot of people of, of a very left-wing persuasion tends to end because you know, as part of that conception of what people should investigate as part of a good life certainly involves, is there a God? Is there a God? What are the implications of that morally, theologically, spiritually, but also how to orient my life around that too? I think these are, these are massively important. And I think anybody who wants to live a good and meaningful life has to examine them and has to grapple with them. I by no means um, and this is where my friendship with the right tends to end. I by no means think that through that investigation, we will arrive at the same conclusions. Certainly not. And the existence of different cultures is already, you know, the proof of that. We will certainly not arrive at the same conclusions, but we have to investigate it. We have to put our, our faculties to use in pursuit of the truth to these questions. Um, it, I just, I don't see how anything else will bring happiness. Because um, if we look at now, what is the culture of the United States? What brings us together? I listened to a podcast. Now this guy, um, I believe, now he never openly talks about current events. I would say he is more of a center-right persuasion. He said now, but he's a cultural critic. He examines, you know, cultural products and, and books and talks about them and their implications. He said, and, and he meant it, he did not say sarcastically, 
I, I wait, think- I have a question. I have a question about your response. Like, why is that? Yeah, I mean, it, it kind of shows, you know, for the listeners, like you kind of gave sort of an eyebrow raise and uh, kind of skeptical um, look to it. But why, why is that so bad? What I, makes I Marvel like- movies a lot lesser than these cathedrals and I guess religious underpinnings to it, right? Right. Well, that's, a, that's a question <laughs> of, well, it's, it's a complicated one, honestly. I think that this is a really awful answer. I'm, I'm trying to formulate a better one, but I'm not quite sure if I can do it, frankly. But honestly, I would say if you ask the majority of people, now again, I'm, I'm saying this after telling you why I don't think there's wisdom in crowds, but I would say that, that certainly there could be a case made that there is more aesthetic value of a cathedral, of Michelangelo's David, of, you know, the last judgment than there is in, in a Marvel movie. And certainly too, I will tell you, um, the person who made that podcast that I heard that on would certainly agree there is more value in those things. Um, but your question of why, you know, if I can't answer that, if he can't answer that, you know, then it really does raise the question, why is that a bad thing? Now, I, I would say my angle for it is this, the commodification of it. Um, you know, Michelangelo's David and The Last Judgment and paintings by Raphael are certainly priceless. And, and um, there is something to be said for, you know, the immense wealth of the church. But the church isn't selling Michelangelo's David. The church is not selling The Last Judgment. Um, I would say there is something, and, and this is kind of a, a romantic, and I mean that in like the philosophical of romanticism. There's almost a romantic, idealistic notion of this, but I would say there is something that compromises not the aesthetic value, but the cultural value of something that has, you know, that is not demanded by the market like Michelangelo's David, that did not feed Italian peasants. There was not a market demand for that. But Avengers and, and you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe are designed to sell movie tickets. They're designed to, you know, expand franchises. So I guess like the, anything, anything with like a profit incentive or anything to get something material out of it, apart from a sense of fulfillment and like satisfaction and joy you see that as lesser not lesser i i not not even like less valuable but like just like less interesting sure yeah i mean i think another thing too is that you know the the mcu and and movies in general are also you know, in, in trying to achieve a mass appeal, also go down to the lowest common denominator. And in some cases, not in many, but in some cases, this will change the story. Now I'm about to say something very dorky, if you'll allow this small um, <laughs> digression. This is very, very nerdy, the fact that I even know this. I loved Star Wars when I was very little. I could not learn enough about that franchise, the expanded universe, all of it fascinated me. Now, something very interesting about episode one. I am friends with somebody a couple of decades older than me, 
um, who she told me she went to see episode one. So I'm talking about The Phantom Menace, not the first one. So episode one, she saw in theaters. And she said everybody had huge expectations. And she said her perception of it was they all walk out of the theater extremely disappointed. And one of the things that I learned later, now, I just have to ask because I, I need to know if you will share in this in this feeling. Have you seen the, the Star Wars movies? Okay. <laughs> so there is this one very annoying character in episode one who is who is this alien, and he's he's very annoying. And everybody hated him. So many people hated him. It is now a, a little known fact among the, the fan community that that character now he played a marginal role in the first episode. And in the next two, it was greatly diminished. It was part of the script of the later movies for him to be essentially one of the masterminds behind the bad guy's plot. This was written. It was, this is the way the movie was written. But the reception of the character was so universally and strongly negative, they wrote him out of the other two movies, essentially. Um, he, they took out his role as the mastermind behind the whole thing. So I think that that is a great example of how any art product that is at the mercy of the market and of mass audiences, not only does it go for the lowest common denominator, it will change itself when the demand changes and when a certain demand presents itself. In this case, less of that character. Um, mm -hmm. Now, there are people who could debate, you know, whether or not this is a major subtraction from the movie. I tend to think it's negligible, frankly. But it, it raises the question, how susceptible is, is are our art products to cultural pressure? And I would say that kind of, you know, raises questions of their empirical value. I see. And going back to, like, the creation of Michelangelo. I'm not really sure what the premise was for it. Like what, what was the genesis of that? Was it just purely like he wanted to make this and so he did? No, I think a majority of Renaissance art is commissioned by the church. Now I, I have no doubt that, you know, I think they wanted to, to make art, but it is true that the, the, the church did give them money to, to, you know, paint the Sistine Chapel or, or you know, paint the, the papal palaces or whatever. Um, they, are, they are given money for these to be sure. But I do, you know, to get back to what you're saying, I think, it, I think they would be notable artists, whether their patron was the church or whether it was, it was an Italian noble, I think they would still create art. But the thing is like, whether an art piece is well because when you think about all of these cathedrals like they do have their appeal but mm. i feel like that appeal the nature of that appeal has transformed into being more of a footnote and like a nice to see rather than like this is essential to our culture at least from my opinion i think you're right and i like think that that's value has sort of culture. diminished yeah. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and But I do think that I, I want you to understand that I have, while agreeing with the phenomenon that you've highlighted, I think it's an extremely bad thing. I think it's a negative development, frankly. 
Um, and I think that the, the marginalization of what those cathedrals stand for is, is, is a very unfortunate thing. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. Notre Dame de Paris, which just burned, is now being rebuilt. It is, it is not, it does not belong to the church. It is a possession of the French government. It is going to be made into some kind of science exhibit or something. Now I'm not, I'm not saying this. No. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Yes. Holy that shit. Is, I think, the instinctual response of humanity. That's what it should be. Not because I don't like science. I'm not saying there shouldn't be science museums, but why are you going to turn a cultural artifact like a cathedral into a in, into a monument to science? And I can tell you why they're going to do it because we have this notion in the West that science and and religion and theology are are in conflict. And I, there are two realities that I, I need to address: real theology and science, and real theology and real science kept within their proper bounds, there is no conflict. Now this becomes an untenable position in America where you have Protestant evangelicals who count among their more rational beliefs that the earth is 6,000 years old and that humans rode dinosaurs and, and you know Adam and Eve were literally people that literally everything that they described literally happened. This becomes an untenable position, um, but it is certainly not helping this idea that we have of a conflict between science and religion when you make a cathedral a monument to science. I think that's ridiculous. Yeah. Well, now I feel like I might be shifting more to your position. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, no, it's a good thing. It's just like... I always wonder in this kind of a side note is like, what would our museums look like? And I'm not optimistic about that. Like, <laughs> I think it will be less grand. It won't be very transitory. I, I think that's the thing that I'm most bothered about, about our culture is that it's very transitory. It's ephemeral. Yes. It's ephemeral. Yeah, exactly. And there is something to be, admired about something that withstands legacies and like has generational you know goes through generation without losing its um i guess value but then again that's right. subjective right yeah well, it is and and so this is um it is subjective but you're kind of thank you by the way because you're saying what i was trying to say earlier you're saying it much better um because I was, I was saying earlier, I think a lot of people would agree that a statue is more valuable than a movie. It, that may or may not be true. What is true is a statue has an enduring value because when Michelangelo's David was made, this is not something that the, the, the Italian peasants were like, oh, well, that's pretty cool. All right, now on to the next best thing. That endures. Can we say the same for The Hunger Games or Blade Runner? or the latest, you know, music video of Cardi B and DJ Khaled twerking on camera. Like you're, you got exactly to what I was trying to say, which is that those things have enduring cultural value. And certainly the Hunger Games and Cardi B and whoever else have cultural value because 
for some reason, people decided they're desirable and valuable. But in 10 years or 100 years, or to be very grim, 500 years, who will be talking about Cardi B or, you know, the Hunger Games trilogy or, or things like that? I, I am inclined to wonder who will yeah. be. Yeah, and, and now that I'm thinking about it, like I feel like a lot of the value also comes from the context and like medium that it was built on. That's true. Yeah. If Cardi B's video was admired by the Pope, I am pretty sure that that would give it a whole lot more value um, than putting it out on the uh, on YouTube, right, for for five million people to see. That's why I'm glad the Pope doesn't use Instagram. He has a staff that uses it for him. <laughs> right. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. I have to think about this because, like, I guess the bigger question is, why do we think one thing is more valuable than the other? Why is one more enduring? Like, a video could last for however longer than a cathedral does, right? You know who talks about this a lot? I'm reading this book right now. Um, I've mentioned her before, but Camille Paglia, that professor at um, University of the Arts in, in Philadelphia, um, she wrote a book called Sexual Persona, which I don't care where you are ideologically or, or anybody, I would highly recommend this book because she discusses, to get to your point, you know, who determines what's more valuable. Paglia makes this, this book was released in the 90s. She makes a massively controversial argument where she basically says, I want to examine the Western literary canon, the Western art. I want to examine it, but she goes, I want to dispel this notion that is essential to our understanding of the West. She says, I don't think Christianity defeated paganism. She goes, Christianity um, took over the Roman Empire, then the Roman Empire fell, and you know, a lot, lot more people are Christian now, but she says, pagan themes, pagan mythology, and, and the overall um, disposition of, of the polytheistic religion of Rome. She says, this lives on in art and in literature. And she discusses how thing, to get to your point about what's, what is, you know, how do we determine what is superior? She would say, she goes on to argue that all Western art um, is in some inherent sense pornography. She, she goes, she goes, it is, absolutely ridiculous she says that we can look at you know paintings of nude women done by french people and you know rembrandt and all these people and and we call this taste but then you know we look at pornography and, and we call this you know like actual video video pornography she goes oh we call this yeah. you know disgusting she goes it's the same thing she goes she her essential argument is that western art is the porn hub of the 1500s <laughs> which is such an, I, I mean, like I said, I, I'm reading the book right now. I don't, yeah. I'm sure I'm not going to agree with all of her conclusions, but what an interesting perspective to gain because you're not going to get that at a museum. <laughs> Rob, this has been one of the most intellectual conversations that I've had. Uh, I learned so much from you in the last hour and a half. Um, Thank you. <laughs> well, I was, I was thinking, should we end off on a good note? What are you most excited about? Uh, well, no. What are you most proud about about our culture right now? About our culture? 
amongst the 99.9% of I will say appointments that we are. <laughs> well, that's first of all, that's a very good way to put it. I would say this. There is a lot of um, it feels new, and I would argue that it's really not new, but there is a lot of of concern about very what what are perceived as very left-wing ideas in the country about racial justice, about racial equality. Um, and people on the right wing are inclined to point out the excesses of these arguments. And sometimes there are legitimate examples of excess. Um, but I would say, that, and, and there are some people who will talk about, oh, well, the fact that we have to have these, these um, movements now, you know, that's a very bad thing. But I would argue actually the exact opposite. I would say from the perspective of, of somebody who's progressive, this is a really good thing. You know, the fact that we have reckonings with um, incidents in the past, whether they're racial or regards to inequality of the sexes or, um, you know, any other kind of identity. I would say this shows the, the supreme and quite interesting, the supreme contradiction of the West in the sense that it appears, the history appears to be, um, you know, examples of, of powerful groups attempting to preserve their hegemony and their power and their influence or their privilege, if you will. But the story of Western civilization, in my opinion, the triumph of Western civilization is that those groups are rarely successful. And so I would say that, you know, there are people who talk about, oh, well, you know, there's so much, you know, brutality and inequality in our country, I would say the fact that that those notions and that those viewpoints, the fact that they're widely entertained by by a lot of people, shows not only the the uniqueness of our culture, but the uniqueness of of a people who are striving constantly to live up to those values and will continue to honestly. I think we are an incredibly self-aware generation, and. Yes. <laughs> instability is i feel like instability is always a byproduct of examining your own society and culture for sure it just yes, has to, it's something that we have to go through in the crucible and just like come out better um right so. I, I think you're right i think it's it's absolutely the case that that you will have people who are uncomfortable from you know examining and, you know, from from cultural analysis. Now, this is, I want to be very clear though. I don't think, I, I, I do think that there are, there is plenty of excess in movements that seek to, to fundamentally um, restructure how we view ourselves in our, in our society. I, t I tend to be of the opinion that the excess will be moderated by more moderate people. I hope this is the case because, um, you know, the alternative I don't think would be very desirable either. So I, I do think, though, that um, it, it is possible to temper the, the excess of movements. But, but, you know, you're right. Introspective movements will create either the illusion of or legitimately will create instability. But I think that that's something to be as I've examined the idea of that, like, you know, this idea of, oh, well, left-wing critiques are subversive. They create, you know, upheaval. 
the question that I would pose to somebody who believes that. What is the ideal society to you? You know, is the ideal society in perfect stasis? Is it never examining itself? It's, it's only tenuously clinging to the, the um, alliances that, that exist right now. It's attempting to preserve them so that we don't, you know, start any old conflicts. That doesn't seem like a way forward. That seems like a way, that seems like a way to, to greater instability in the, in the future. Or just passive suffering, which... Yes, that too. Yes, definitely. <laughs> passive suffering. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Rob, this was great. Um, is there any last words that you would like to remind listeners before we close this? I'm hoping you don't get into... A, I hope you don't take a lot of shit from my unpopular positions i'm really really hoping <laughs> i don't th- i don't think we will i think people will actually find a lot of value from this conversation if anything their response like what I, I feel like everything you've said so far whether or not it's people who agree with you um i think it will remind them to like hey you know put a magnifying glass to the, these things because they're gonna affect mm. either your generation or the next one so Right. And reevaluate kind of, you know. For sure. Yeah. But thank you. And have a good Sunday. Thank you. You too. Yeah. Talk to you soon. Bye. Before you go, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please take 15, 20 seconds to leave a nice rating and review. It'll really, really help the show. Also, Come say hi and let me know what you thought about it on Knuckleball Podcast on Instagram. I really love to get to know you as well. And maybe, maybe we can be friends. Who knows? (laughs) All right. Have a good day. Bye-bye.